Truth Espresso, episode 236. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. <laughs> and now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. This is Truth Espresso with Daniel Minnick. Hello there, friends, family, foes, lurkers alike. This is your host, Daniel Minnick, and I have my sweet, beautiful wife and co-host, Chelsea. And I'm sure you missed her last week as I did a solo, but we are back together again. And we are also back to continuing our series on the revivals in American history. And we're continuing the first Great Awakening So, sweetheart, ready to finish up the Great Awakening part of our revival series? Yes, this is exciting. (laughs) And so, if you check back a few episodes in our series here, we talked about some of the preliminary characters involved that led up to Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, and now we're going to talk about John Wesley, the father of Methodism. Now, I think as I've looked at John Wesley, one statement that I kind of came up with, given his experience, is that personal revival should begin with a heart of peace with God. And we'll see how that plays out in John Wesley's personal experience as he kind of had part of his life trying to do revival before he ended up having an experience where he considered it his true conversion to Christianity, where he finally got peace in his heart toward God, that he was truly redeemed. So John Wesley was born in 1703 in the town of Epworth, Lincolnshire in England. Wesley was the 15th child of his parents. So people had a lot of children back then, and his father's wife, Susanna Wesley, was the 25th child of her parents. And so, yes, people had lots of children then, and there's good reason for that, because they didn't have the standard of living and life expectancy that we have today. And so John Wesley's parents had 19 children, but only nine of which actually survived past infancy. And yes, that is true tragic, but that's what people did at the time to ensure that they had living and surviving children. They had lots of children. So I personally like Susanna Wesley. I think she was a very interesting woman in history. And there's actually some books that I know we have. I didn't have time to pull them out, but some of the principles of homeschooling and just structure for children and helping shape characters in your children kind of came from some of the stuff Susanna used. So with them being more poor and living kind of more in a country area in England, they were homeschooling. And Susanna was really strict about it. She would make sure all the kids sat at the table and that they were respectful and they weren't like goofing off or running around. And 
part of that was what kind of interests me about her. But she also had this kind of stubborn side of her. <laughs> like if there's something that she was convicted about, she stood by that. So for an example, she did not like King James the first, first. there. And or wait, this wouldn't be the first this I think time. It was the second. Yeah, because okay. the first was back in a hundred years ago at this point. <laughs> so King James the second, she did not care for and had good reasons for that. And if anyone prayed for good health for the king, then she refused to say amen at the end <laughs> of the prayer because she did not agree with a king that was usurping his authority and kingship over people. She didn't agree that that type of person should be a king. So things like that. It was just kind of like fun to read about and learn about who she was and how she just raised her children and she brought them up. And you can see as we go through the history and the background of John Wesley here that she did a good job in training and teaching her children. And I picture Susanna Wesley. He's She's a deep and caring person, but she'd also have her kind of sarcastic and uh, passive aggressive uh, aspects of her personality. <laughs> well, and she was very intelligent. Mm. Like she knew quite a bit of some different languages and she knew about like physics. And another cool thing was she actually started having prayer meetings in her kitchen. So they called them kitchen prayers, but people would come and want to listen to her talk and they would pray and discuss the scripture. And But when her husband came home, he did not like that. <laughs> it's like, oh, you should not be teaching. <laughs> but yeah, she didn't go for that. So she kept going on with the prayers in the kitchen and until she died even. Yeah. She was 73 when she died, I think I saw. I'm sure that was probably instrumental a little bit in how John Wesley himself later on would involve some women in ministry positions. <laughs> so to John Wesley, as a five-year-old child, he had a traumatic experience when he was at the clergy house where he was being schooled. At one point, it, it caught on fire on the roof, and so a lot of the people there, they ran out for safety, but John himself ended up being stranded on the top floor and couldn't find a way of escape there, and so he was barely rescued as the fire was headed toward him and crawling toward him. There were two adults who had escaped, and one was kind of sitting on the other one's shoulders to reach up and barely grasp his hand to pull him down. So yeah, that was uh, quite the experience that would stick with him for the rest of his life, and he alluded to it with kind of personalizing Zechariah 3 verse 2, where it mentions a brand plucked out of the fire. <laughs> so that was pretty much kind of his personalized verse for his life for that incident there. Now, when John Wesley and his brother Charles went to college in Oxford, after they graduated and John got his master's degree, they started a group, kind of a Bible study, prayer, and holiness group that the critics called that group the Holy Club and the Bible Bigots. And so we are, what else are they also called? <laughs> <laughs> they are also called Methodists. And at that time, Methodist was considered like a derogatory word and 
kind of putting them down <laughs> but that eventually kind of stuck with them <laughs> <laughs> yeah they later started the methodist church yeah, which seems kind of common in Christian history where terms that the opponents or critics would give would become appropriated. Like the term Christian, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch, you know, by the opponents of it. Oh, look at the little Christians, the little Christs going around, and then they would call themselves by the term their enemies or critics gave them. And in this case, the Methodists got their term from the critics. <laughs> It's interesting because part of being labeled Methodists came from the way they kind of structured Mm -hmm. religion. And I don't know, just reading about John Wesley, too, he seemed like he was a very structured person. (laughs) And that probably came, again, like from his mom, like just having a lot of structure in their house and stuff. But it was like, okay, you needed to make sure you had time to walk and get fresh air and Make sure you drink water at certain times. Make sure you didn't eat a meal after a certain time of day. And then you had your routine of studying God's word or fasting and practicing charity to other people. And it was just (laughs) kind of interesting how there was a method to what he did. And it's interesting, later on, he would develop a little bit more of a freedom and rogueness, I guess, to his methodism, but it's still applied to his life and to his way of life. And so these methodists in this holy club, they practice charity to relieve debtors from prison. So they would be saving up money and then trying to help at the time where you'd have debtors prisons where people, if they couldn't pay their debts, they would go to prison and then kind of work almost slave labor, like to pay off their debts. And so it's like, okay, these unfortunate people who are in prison simply because of debts. Well, let's help relieve them and get them released from prison. The Methodism, methods of study, methods of fasting. The Wesleys, these Methodists also focused on how do we model our lives off of what we can see as we study early church history. There was a strong desire in John Wesley, especially even before his conversion experience, as he calls it, there is a desire, even as he's trying to evangelize people, to evangelize them and teach them the ways of what he perceived was the ways of the early church. And now, in 1735, which would make Wesley about 32 years old, so John and Charles Wesley decided to travel across the pond to the colonies. They traveled to Savannah, Georgia. And now one of John Wesley's kind of traumatic experiences there was while sailing to the Americas, a bad storm hit and even broke the ship's mast. So he was terrified for his life, but there were some Moravians aboard. And we talked a little bit about the Moravians with George Whitfield. So while John was fearing for his life, he noticed the way these Moravians would handle the situation. They're just singing and rejoicing to God. And that kind of touched him. He was like, I want what they have. I don't know how they have this, but I want that somehow. (laughs) So John did make it safely to Savannah, Georgia, and he eventually became a minister of the new Christ Church there. 
And while he was in Savannah, Georgia, and ministering from Christ Church, he evangelized Native Americans, teaching them there what he called practical theology, and he was trying to demonstrate to them, here's what the early church looked like. (laughs) So kind of the saga of his story (laughs) was when he fell in love with a sweet woman named Sophia Hopke. But he also felt like he was being led to just um, practice celibacy and preach God's word and not be constrained to marriage. And because of that, he kind (laughs) of did not treat Sophia in a chivalrous way, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, so he felt led. uh, He wanted to marry her, and I think he would kind of hint at it, but he'd keep postponing it and reflect on, like, okay, well, the early church practiced celibacy and the fact that he traveled there to evangelize the Native Americans there, he kind of felt like, okay, the ministry is a higher calling than marriage, and maybe someday, um, but then she got tired of waiting, like, okay, I love you, but you're not loving me back the way I would expect, which would result in marriage, so she married a guy named William Williamson. So then kind of the problem between them afterwards, and and I'm sure there's some element of, what did I do to this? Where he's like, she got married to someone. I really wanted to marry her, but she just couldn't wait forever. So then he seemed to consider her marriage there as kind of a less than the calling that he perceived of ministry. And so he made an issue out of that by warning her that she couldn't take communion. And he kind of used the Anglican book of common prayer or some kind of Anglican book to demonstrate to her that she didn't qualify for communion, but he warned her not to take it, but then she refused. And then, so he flat out denied her communion as the minister of her church there. So then she tried to push back by pressing charges. And then eventually, even though he likely wouldn't have lost that suit there. He figured there's just too much contention and there's too much criticism of my ministry here, so he fled back to England. (laughs) Poor John Wesley there, and he never ended up getting married, so, you know, he had the chance there, but during the time, as he was trying to assess what he should be doing, he kind of lost the love interest that he had. When he went back to England, he also, in his journal, he reflected on his experience in America, where he said, quote, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? Who, what is he that will deliver me from this evil heart of unbelief? Unquote. And so Wesley kind of reflected over the fact that he was evangelizing people, but he himself struggled with his own lack of assurance of salvation. So he's trying to give salvation to people, but he's kind of wondering, well, who's going to help me with my own problem here? My name is Andy Olson, and I want to tell you about Echozoi Radio. Echozoi Radio is a podcast outreach of Echozoi Ministries. Every month I find a knowledgeable guest to talk about an important and interesting topic that affects the church today. 
We carefully balance the discussions of positive, God-glorifying doctrines of Orthodox Christianity from a mostly Reformed point of view with exposés of heresy, false teaching, and poor practice that goes on throughout the church today. You can find us at echozoe.com. That's E-C-H-O-Z-O-E dot com. 1937, a mere two years of being in the Americas when he moved back to England, he found some Moravians. Kind of like these Moravians, don't you? So you are, they, they seem to be exemplary in a way for these revivalist preachers here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so as he would learn from the Moravians and they would be trying to teach him about justification by faith, and I think he would kind of struggle with that and like kind of, yeah, that makes sense, but he just wouldn't know how to like really take that given his kind of structured Anglican, traditional Anglican background that was more kind of Catholic-like, sacramental and works-based. So as he hung out with the Moravians, there was one sermon on Aldersgate Street in London where a Moravian was reading Martin Luther's Introduction to Romans. And as he was hearing that, he described that he felt his heart strangely warmed. And according to Wesley, this was his true conversion experience. So at least this was the point where he kind of reconciled his heart in a way like, I finally get it. I finally can feel assurance because now I understand that God truly does accept me and justify me based on faith alone. And I was reading Luther's preface to Romans to kind of get an idea of like what was Wesley hearing read that would warm his heart. And like, yeah, Luther's <laughs> introduction of the kind of an outline of the book of Romans and how he describes what it's saying against what, say, like the Roman Catholic scholastics would just assume stuff. One part of it, Luther said, quote, so too, faith comes only through the word of God, the gospel that preaches Christ, how he is both son of God and son of man, how he died and rose for our sake. Paul says all this in chapters 3, 4, and 10. That is why faith alone makes someone just and fulfills the law. Faith it is that brings the Holy Spirit through the merits of Christ. The Spirit in turn renders the heart glad and free as the law demands. Then good works proceed from faith itself. Unquote. So I think as Wesley heard that, he kind of got it like, so, yeah, I don't have to do works to get God's approval and justification. It truly is faith alone, and that's what the Apostle Paul taught in the book of Romans. And any works that I do come out of a faith that's already saved, and it just demonstrates that God has changed my heart for me. I don't have to try and work to get God's approval. I think it's neat, too, how Wesley kind of discovered that just works alone, like doing these certain things like fasting or praying or evangelizing, telling other people, like those outward works wasn't what saved him. Mm-hmm. It was that transformation, like in that personal, like you said, acceptance of what Christ did for him. And it just reminded me of Ephesians 4, verse 22. We can start in, it says that you put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, 
in that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. So I think it's just cool, like, seeing that transformation of when Christ indwells you, like, you don't have that old man that's, like, fearful and continues to worry about eternal security. Mm-hmm. What, you know, when he was going through that relationship issue was, you know, who was going to save him? And now you see a difference in Wesley as we go forward from here where there's, like, that inward change in him. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the part where we look through the history of revival is, like, revival is that inward working of Christ in us. And it's not just these works that we do and can do for a show. And it has to be something that changes inside of you. And it's something that only the Holy Spirit can do. And it is kind of evident in how Hmm. we see this kind of shift in how Wesley works here, I think. So now that John Wesley had his heart taken care of and his was set at liberty, now he could truly preach from a changed and peaceful heart. Now, as Wesley traveled and preached, he would first travel from church to church, hoping to be allowed to preach because he was ordained as an Anglican. He had his holy orders. He technically should have been allowed to, but his regenerate Methodism didn't seem to be accepted very well in the Anglican churches that were there. And, you know, at the time in England, basically, you might have a few Presbyterian churches if they're allowed to operate, but otherwise, England would go back and forth depending on the faith of the monarch between Roman Catholic and Anglican. Anglican, which had a lot of similarities, but it was just a matter of whether you accepted the Pope of Rome as the head of the church, or maybe the king would have more sway over the ultimate authority of the church. But otherwise, the sacramentalism was pretty similar. So Wesley would end up encountering George Whitfield. Now, I forgot to mention that John and Charles Wesley also among their group at Oxford was, in fact, George Whitfield that we had talked about in a previous episode. So these three were pretty much the founders of Methodism. And we had mentioned that George Whitfield tried to preach first in churches and he would be booted out of the churches. And so George Whitfield found a way of evangelizing outside the walls of the churches by preaching near the churches, out in open fields, walking and traveling down streets and gathering crowds. That worked very well for Whitfield. And so Whitfield was building his itinerant ministry ministry as John Wesley was trying to figure out how to gain converts by trying to preach in churches, and Wesley was encountering the same problem that Whitfield had encountered. So the two had met up and were coordinating preaching events, and Whitfield told Wesley, like, hey, this is the way you got to do it. This is the way I've been doing it, and it works. You need to preach outdoors. And Wesley was trying to hold on more to his Anglican roots, a little bit like 
that just doesn't seem right. You know, if you're going to preach to people the gospel, it's got to be within the walls of a church. (laughs) And at Whitfield's invitation, he's like, all right, come on. I've got an event here preaching outdoors in a field. I'm going to let you speak. So here's your chance to try it. (laughs) And Wesley felt weird doing it, but he had a chance to do his first outdoor sermon at Whitfield's invitation. And the rest, as they say, is history with that, because then like Whitfield, Wesley would do lots and lots of sermons outdoors and often in fields. So I have a trivia for you. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, the trivia. <laughs> yeah. We'll sneak some trivia in now that we're wrapping up a little more of the Great Awakening stuff. So, because John Wesley traveled a lot to preach in fields and pretty much anywhere he could go, he rode horseback a lot. (laughs) So, there's a statistic. So, John Wesley rode far enough on horseback to circle the earth. How many times do you think? Oh, let's see. I'm going to guess 50. (laughs) 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 Was I close? Uh, no. <laughs> oh, I was like, was I way too many? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so he rode on horseback enough times to circle the earth 10 times. 10 times. Okay. So he rode over 250,000 miles. Oh, okay. I remembered somehow reading something about several hundred thousand miles. And then I was trying to think in my head, okay, <laughs> divided by 24,000. I don't remember what the number is. So let me, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good job thinking that through because that's kind of a weird question. But So he basically circled the earth 10 times by riding around in the UK and stuff, basically. Well, that's a lot of, he probably saw a lot of the same area multiple times. Yeah, I'm not sure if that number includes when he was in the US too or not. If it does, he never returned to America after yeah. he, the Aldersgate experience good trivia there sweetheart (laughs) 10 times around the earth in the uk that's a lot of riding and around those islands there (laughs) now if you have heard a previous episode when we talked about george whitfield he experienced a lot of physical assault and threats on his life and so wesley likewise as kind of with a rogue ministry compared to the prim and proper sacramentalism of the Anglican Church and where it's kind of a routine of ministry where you you sit in the pews, you partake of the sacraments, but someone's heart might not truly be regenerate, but they're going through the rigid motions of Anglican liturgy and so on. So when you have someone who's preaching kind of heartfelt and on fire like John Wesley and George Whitfield were, it's almost like the way people might have considered the hippies in the 1960s. That's the way they thought about this kind of (laughs) evangelism, like it was just so vulgar and common and not wearing the proper attire and stuff. And, you know, so this was not true suit and tie type. Christianity here. (laughs) And so because they were kind of rogue that way with their Methodism, things written against them, people would speak against them, and sometimes there would be physical assault, and Wesley experienced some of that. 
because the Anglican Church believed that their preaching was not authorized, so therefore it was invalid preaching, and their methods and the way of speaking for personal heart conversions, apart from just the institutionalized sacraments, was heterodox. Wesley also seemed to go a little more rogue with his Methodism by appointing non-Anglican and lay ministers, which would be a taboo in the Anglican Church, even though Wesley continued to call himself Anglican. He also would even have women in certain ministry positions. Now, like I don't necessarily think it was unbiblical what he was doing, but for the Anglican Church at this time, it was like the women keep silent in all aspects and not have a ministry to do. So Wesley would still struggle to reconcile his kind of high church Anglican traditions with his very rogue lay ministry evangelism. So unlike, say, Whitfield, who would probably stop calling himself Anglican, like he was fine with kind of breaking ties with it, Wesley was trying to keep a foot in both worlds in a way. As you mentioned, sweetheart, about all the riding, the circuit riding that Wesley did with the ten times around the earth. So in the process of that, he's estimated to have preached about 40,000 sermons between his heartwarming experience and his death. That's a lot of sermons. (laughs) Yes. And just how powerful and heartfelt type of sermons he gave. It wasn't like <laughs> these cheesy little, like, let me hurry and throw out some <laughs> sermons here. But Oh, yeah, yeah. They, they were pretty deep. I read a few of the Whitfield sermons, you know, and I try to look at some John Wesley sermons. You know, yeah, they're well thought out. They're methodical, you know, like for true Methodist sermon, it's kind of like, okay, let me have a premise. Let me have supporting scripture. Let me develop a thought to kind of lead the listener on. Now consider this. Now let me add this so I can bring you to the, oh, conclusion at the end. Like, okay, what must I do to be saved? You know, here we go. This is what you need. Justification by faith and so on. I remember one of Wesley's sermons that he's well known for when he'd preach in the field. He would give this end of the world type sermon where he'd narrate the scenery of what happens when the heavens and earth pass away and you have the great white throne judgment. And so, yeah, like one of his sermons that would probably have people drop to their knees and Now, one interesting thing about Wesley and Whitfield is their relationship because they had known each other for quite a few years back during the Holy Club time at Oxford. So John and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield, all being founders of Methodism and all, to some extent, former Anglicans, They had their disagreements, you know, because uh, as we describe at this time, Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield would be considered Calvinists and John Wesley would be considered Arminian. 
And I know people have those battles up to this day, but Whitfield and Wesley demonstrated how people who disagree on that can be good friends. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, they maintained a friendship. It became a little strained earlier on as they would kind of argue against each other and write against each other. But then over time, they got closer and closer to where they adored each other, actually. (laughs) So interestingly, the phrase to agree to disagree that we commonly use today possibly originated from one of Wesley's printed letters over this topic. (laughs) Some historians debate that this possibly wasn't Wesley, but then others say it could have been, so... We're not sure, but that is a common term that we use often that we're going to agree to disagree. So whether on that topic or other nuances of Christianity, people can take that advice well, even today, you know, to agree to disagree. Because <laughs> some things are just not worth dying on a hill over and stuff as long as you can cooperate in ministry. And the goal is evangelizing people, teaching justification by faith and revival. So it's interesting on this and their disagreements, those who were on Whitfield's side kind of asked him about like, okay, you know, given your disagreement, basically, like, so do you think we'd see that John Wesley in heaven? (laughs) And Whitfield's answer was kind of like, you know, it was a very high compliment of Wesley where he says, I fear not. And they're probably thinking like, oh, you're going to cast him out of the kingdom, right? But he says, I fear not for he will be so near the eternal throne and we at some a distance we shall hardly get sight of him (laughs) so i think that was a cool quote from whitfield to describe just how highly he viewed john wesley even with people who would disagree with wesley Mm. on on that topic Another thing that illustrated their close friendship there is when we talked about George Whitfield and his tireless evangelism and how he'd preach multiple sermons in a day, traveling around, wearing himself out, he would realize kind of his health is declining. And he told John Wesley, like, if I should pass before you do, then please preach my eulogy. And so when Whitfield did indeed pass away, at around 56 years old, John Wesley preached his eulogy, the eulogy at his funeral. Ever wish you could get together with a friend over coffee each week and talk about God's Word? Me too. Hi, I'm Anthony Russo. I'm the host of Grace and Peace Radio. Grace and Peace Radio is a Christian living blog and podcast dedicated to engaging conversations about applying God's Word to everyday life. I hope you'll join me, Anthony Russo, on Grace and Peace Radio each week at graceandpeaceradio.com or right here on the christianpodcastcommunity.org. So John Wesley passed away in 1791 when he was 87 years old. And I think something neat about a lot of these people we read about, they usually have some very insightful saying on their deathbed or at least close to dying. And so on his deathbed, John Wesley said, the best of all is God is with us. And that's just such a beautiful thing to remember that no matter what we're going through, no matter what we're facing, 
just even in our day-to-day life with work or raising kids, like the best thing, the most glorious thing to think about is that God is with us. Like that's just so amazing. Yeah, and I think that kind of demonstrates how after the Aldersgate experience, John Wesley really appropriated that to his ministry then, because before that, he would probably wonder, like, is God really with me? Like, how do I grasp onto God? How do I get God's attention here? But now it's, okay, this is the best thing of all. God is with us. Wow, I love that kind of personal faith there. And John Wesley died poor, as was his intention, because he talked about how he couldn't trust himself with money, and basically he died leaving a minister's cloak and, as was said, the Methodist church. (laughs) (laughs) So there's John Wesley's ministry, and we can see his personality and his preaching described with some of the quotes that he gave. I can start with one. You can do one, sweetheart. So the first quote that we have from John Wesley, the church recruited people who had been starched and ironed before they were washed. (laughs) I kind of like that because he's clearly describing what he saw as the problems in the Anglican church. You know, you had a lot of people academically trained to minister and perform the sacraments who did not have their hearts washed before God. They were not justified. Well, in some ways, he's even talking about himself, too, because that's who he was. So our next quote is, it is the work of God alone to justify, to sanctify, and to glorify. I love that (laughs) because then that's one of those things that gives assurance of salvation and standing before God and ministry to realize, okay, it's not my doing, it's God's doing. Anything I do is God working through me, you know, so this is the approval of God to minister his word. Another one, until my work on earth is done, I am immortal. But when my work for Christ is done, I go to be with Jesus. (laughs) I like that because realizing that God is the giver and keeper of life. Basically, I remember seeing a quote from George Whitfield making a similar claim, like, essentially, I'm immortal because if God wants me to live and do something, he has the power to keep me and to make it happen. And then, okay, when I perish, I go with Jesus. Which I like this quote because I was mentioning to you a little bit earlier, babe, how I saw John Wesley had written this book called, now I'm going to forget it because I don't have it for me. I think it's something like medical physique or physics. Yeah, something like that. Basically, he wrote a medical handbook for the layperson to read because he was frustrated with doctors at that time becoming this kind of separate class of people. And he's like, okay, doctors use language that common day people don't understand. They make medications with all sorts of ingredients that you don't even know what some of the ingredients are or what actually helps you feel better. And he's just kind of frustrated with the whole medical system, which I was like, oh, I feel you there, John Wesley. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But one of his big things in there was that he said that doctors are forgetting that one of the most important parts of taking care of your health is looking and noticing what God has provided for you. 
And he's like, he's provided us water, so we need to drink water. He's provided us fresh air, so we need to get out and exercise and get fresh air. And he's provided us food from the ground and the earth, and those are the foods that we should be eating. And then he said the important one is taking that time in prayer and recognizing that God is the giver and sustainer of life. And when it is our time, that God will take us. And just kind of that reflection there. And yeah, for some reason, this quote just reminded oh. me of that. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, that might have been in that book too. I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, could definitely relate to John Wesley, especially in today. You could see echoes of that ever greater with almost like this biomedical state that doesn't regard the nature that God has given us for our benefit. So our next quote is kind of interesting. It's another one of those that is probably a more common quote from John Wesley, but we're not entirely sure it's from John Wesley, according to some sources. So, But it's still a good quote, so we'll mention this one. So, do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. Sounds like a high standard there. I don't know if I could live up to that, but it's definitely a good principle to live by there. Another quote, what one generation tolerates, the next generation will embrace. And oh, do we see that? <laughs> yeah. When I read that one, I was like, wow, we are just seeing that played out so much right now. Yeah. It's very true. And his next quote is, People who wish to be offended will always find some occasion for taking offense. A lot of these statements are just true. You see that a lot. And this is one that I'm like, oh, it's easy to fall into. Like, you feel offended in something and then you feel like you start getting offended by all these other things. <laughs> so it's like, oh, okay, just trying to have that mindset of giving it to God and having that peace of mind and yeah, not taking offense at everything. I see like wokeism and critical race theory in here too, where it's like people get obsessed with their own identity in a way. And then if you're looking to be offended by embracing something, some kind of ideology like critical race theory, then everything is racist and so on. Mm. Good insight there, John Wesley. <laughs> some things never change. <laughs> and now a final quote I have from John Wesley is, do you know why that cow looks over that wall? She looks over the wall because she cannot see through it. And that is what you must do with your troubles. Look over and above them. <laughs> I think that's quite the witty message there about how to treat our troubles the way a cow looks over a wall. <laughs> yeah. So now one really good thing to mention about Wesley is that he was an avid abolitionist. He was ultimately a mentor to William Wilberforce. Now, when William Wilberforce was young, he also came into contact with George Whitfield, and he was a bit of a mentor, too. 
And we did mention with Whitfield that he wasn't an abolitionist like Wesley was. Now he had his own understanding of how not to abolish slavery, but he thought it could be an institutional means to convert African Americans that he cared for. And Whitfield gets a lot of slack for that. So Whitfield wasn't perfect, but he was far above and beyond a lot of other people at the time who favored slavery and didn't care for African Americans. But Wesley was even better than that by being an avid abolitionist. And there's a quote here, uh, as I was reading his thoughts upon slavery, I found a, a really powerful quote there where he says, Oh, thou God of love, thou who art loving to every man and whose mercy is over all thy works, thou who art the father of the spirits of all flesh, who art rich in mercy unto all, thou who hast mingled of one blood all the nations upon earth, have compassion upon these outcasts of men who are trodden down as dung upon the earth. Arise and help these that have no helper, whose blood is spilt upon the ground like water. Are not these also the work of thine own hands, the purchase of thy son's blood? Stir them up to cry unto thee in the land of their captivity, and let their complaint come up before thee. Let it enter into thy ears. Make even those that lead them away captive to pity them, and turn their captivity as the rivers in the south." O burst thou all their chains in sunder, more especially the chains of their sins. Thou, Savior of all, make them free that they may be free indeed." And this was from, you know, him arguing against slavery and how people should free the slaves and treat them as brothers. And yeah, so definitely praise Wesley for having the insight to be totally anti-slavery at a time where it wasn't very popular. Now, we do find that history as taught today tries to really make things worse than it was among the thoughts of people at the time and to over throw statues of George Whitfield and such, but Christianity through even George Whitfield and even Jonathan Edwards was definitely headed toward freedom from the rule of King George in England for the American colonies and ultimately the ideas of Christianity taught by even those who weren't abolitionists led toward abolition. And Wesley was very good for his time, but even those who weren't as far as Wesley, their theology ultimately did lead to abolition. And so we have to credit all of the revivalists here in the Great Awakening for ultimately leading the way toward the abolition of slavery. Because without that, who knows how long it might have taken for non-Christian nations and non-revival areas. The revivals helped with that. If you didn't have the revivals, it could have possibly taken a lot longer, if at all, for liberty to be proclaimed and slaves to be freed. So we hope that you enjoyed this look at John Wesley's life and how he experienced a revival himself to become a powerful, itinerant, revivalist preacher who also knew George Whitfield, the other Anglican revivalist. And so we hope you also enjoyed the full discussion on the First Great Awakening. And then, so as we will continue the series on revivals in America, 
will progress toward the second great awakening. And just like with the first great awakening, we see the problems and we see the good and the bad. As we get to the second great awakening, we'll see evolution in philosophy. We will look at both the good and the bad in that too. And so, God bless. Thank you for waking up with Truth Espresso. Good morning, and God bless your day. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso. 